This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Luke Olivier-Zmeble. And I'm Yannick Mangan. And what's our topic for this week, Yannick? What I value in software. Ooh. But before we start, we have some follow-up. And I would like to start the follow-up section this week by a small, uh, not a small, uh, a giant-sized mea culpa. <laughs> um, just before starting to record for this week, hopefully I didn't fuck anything this week, but I, I was trying to figure out what, what, what happened more or less last episode with my audio because my audio quality is was subpar to where uh, we were putting, we use, used to do it so i was trying a couple things trying to record in different rooms until i kind of reopened quick time uh, and realized that oh it's like why did i have to change input in quick times i never i usually not do that and then kind of realize ah oh, crap i i'm not sure but i didn't sub test and then i was like okay now it's using the mic sounds okay and i'm using the internal mic of the laptop and like ah yes okay i have the same audio that what i got from last from two weeks ago so sorry about that i guess you can blame it on the move uh, hopefully it should be all set for today and be back to where it used to be yep uh do you know what today is uh, uh october 22nd well, not literally today, but uh, this week is the sixth anniversary episode of the podcast. Oh, that's true. Oh, I forgot to count. I usually take a make sure to look at the dates. Ooh. Yeah. So I noticed we were coming up to the end of October, and uh, if you've been with us for six years, and congratulations, not very many people have been with us the whole time, uh, and we've had a couple uh, new listeners since uh, since last time we talked about it so uh, thank you to all the new listeners but yep six years and uh no plan of stopping anytime soon uh okay next up uh on the last episode i mentioned uh joshua stein's c programming on system six video series and uh i mentioned that there were technical issues that meant that the the Mac he was developing on died randomly and that sucked and it meant that there weren't going to be more videos. Well, whatever it was, it seems to have been trivial to fix because the series is back and now there's a beautiful little page to go with it. Uh, so I will be putting the link in the show notes. I watched two additional videos uh, right before recording and it's super entertaining. Uh, so if you want to see what developing software for the classic Mac was like, definitely recommended. Which reminds me, I did not didn't do this part of my homework from last episode, but but I did watch some uh, videos of uh, Super Mario Thirty Five, especially the one that Nick was mentioning about the multiple Bowser's, and <laughs> oh my god, yeah, what a great uh, little game! Did you play it though? No, sadly, I like okay. So long story short, I was kind of busy and was not really in the mood to play video games. And also, Tony is playing a lot of Pokemon these days, and he's playing in front of the TV. So I kind of forgot I was not in the mood too. But I did watch a lot of uh, a lot of other streams on Twitch about it. Just not, I think some of them were recording, some of them were live. So uh, and realized that this game is quite crazy. <laughs> uh, but yeah, when I'm more in the mood to play video games, and maybe the Switch is available to play video games too, uh, I would uh, put it in my top list of Switch games to play. Cool. You ready to move on to the main topic? Yes, I am. So if you've known me for quite a long time, uh, you probably know that I've always had some pretty strong opinions about what makes software that I enjoy. Wow, that's that's quite the That's putting it lightly. <laughs> yeah. Lively, yes, and lightly too. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I don't think we actually mentioned this on the show, but uh, a few months ago, I sort of ended up getting a Mac Mini. Uh, my, I realized during quarantine that my laptop wasn't going to close anymore because the battery was swelling and I was like, oh shit, I never want to touch this laptop ever again. Uh, so I got myself a Mac mini uh, for a variety of reasons. And that means that recently I've spent a lot more time using the Mac and especially Catalina. And uh, that sort of put me back into the mindset where I was using Mac software a lot more and it got me thinking about the state of Mac software and surprise, surprise, the state of Mac software in 2020 is pretty embarrassing for the platform. Uh, and I don't think that a lot of the current design trends are likely to result in the kind of software I enjoy anytime soon. Uh, so through my thinking process about like everything I dislike about the modern Mac and all of that stuff, I think I've identified about three things that I really value in software design and development in the year of our Lord 2020. 
and I think it would be pretty interesting to discuss them with everyone. Uh, some of these things are things that I've discovered recently. Some of these things are things that uh, I noticed because of previous episodes we've done. Uh, so it's going to be really interesting to see uh, where we fall on this. So let's start with point number one, which is compact window software. So this is something that came out of the BOS episode we did a couple months ago. Uh, and it really it made me notice something that I always liked, but I hadn't necessarily recognized that was something I liked. Uh, a quick recap, if you didn't listen to the BOS episode, is that a lot of the cool features in BOS at the time revolved around building workflows that were composed of multiple tools that handled a single task well. Uh, some people know this as the Unix philosophy in a sort of pretentious way. Uh, it was almost like a UI version of that philosophy brought to life, and it was really cool. And because these tools were built to handle a specific task very well, apps had very limited scopes, and it made sense for them to use smaller windows. Another thing that sort of brought up this thing uh, in my mind was the Do for Mac redesign that came out a couple of months ago. Uh, the old version of Do, which is an application for reminders and timers and all of that stuff, uh, had this beautiful compact UI that fit in really well with other Mac apps. The new version of Do that came out a couple of months ago has a custom UI that doesn't feel very Mac-like, and it added a bunch of extra unneeded window chrome that made usage much less viable at very small window sizes. Uh, funnily enough, there was so much complaining about the lack of a good compact option that the developer actually <laughs> added it back, although it still doesn't look quite as nice as the old version, which is kind of unfortunate. And really, like the more basic the functionality your app offers, the less of an excuse you have to be a bad compact window experience, uh, as far as I'm concerned. And what sort of underscores all of this is that uh, Catalyst and modern Mac design sort of incentivizes the use of iPad-shaped windows on the Mac. Uh, you're looking at large landscape windows that sit in an aspect ratio somewhere between 3 to 2 and 16 by 9. Uh, you're looking at thicker window, window chrome through the new look of toolbars and sidebars. I think one of the apps you can look at as an example of this transition is if you look at iChat on, let's say, 10.2 to 10.4 days and compare it with messages, uh, you had this tiny buddy list window that was a nice little column that was really cute with these tiny conversation windows with nothing super complicated in them. And then the new version is this landscape orientation window with this sidebar. There's a bunch of wasted space all over the place. There's a bunch of bloat. It's not great. Um, and I mean, like if I was to summarize this, uh, it's that I really miss the days when apps were more often than not shaped like columns instead of shaped like rows or like weird iPad shapes. Uh, and like one of the things that sort of makes this worse is application seems to be trying to be destinations when sometimes they shouldn't be destinations. They should just be tools that get out of the way. Uh, and I don't really know why this became such a big thing. Maybe it's just cross-platform development because on Windows, maximizing Windows is so much more integral to the user experience. Maybe it's because of iPads uh, where people are mostly expected to apps uh, to run apps in full screen. Uh, until a couple of years ago, there was no other option than full screen. And that meant that you sort of had to have a full screen UI. And I think there's nothing more emblematic of this problem than uh, all of the chat silos that we use nowadays. Think of Discord, think of Slack, think of Microsoft Teams. Uh, there are a lot of problematic aspects of these applications beyond just their target window sizes. Um, and like the in <laughs> the comparison I came up with, which is kind of a bad one, but whatever, uh, it, it works. Nobody would put up with a phone that takes up like literally half their physical desk. But we put up with it with chat apps on our desktops. Uh, back in the day with IRC, users had these small windows uh, and either they were using like a, a very slimmed down uh, GUI client or they were using a terminal client. Uh, at most, you would have a handful of tabs at the top of your screen for channels you were actually interested in instead of having a scrolling list of channels that you are forced to be in because that is what your work expects of you. Uh, Window Chrome, again, was kept to a minimum. Many of these apps have multiple layers of confusing hierarchical hierarchy. Uh, sorry, navigational hierarchy. That was a little redundant. Uh, 
for example, Discord, as we mentioned on a previous episode, has an entire game store in there for some reason. Uh, Microsoft Teams tries to do everything. It's uh, also a file sharing app, a meeting calendar. It has tasks li- task lists, and it has an installable app store with sub apps that you can install within it, which now I realize is probably why it's not in the app store. <laughs> <laughs> that makes a lot of sense now that I think about it. Um and again, not necessarily related to the, the window size issue, but group chats are increasingly misused as an archive for reference information that would probably be better suited to be a wiki. And this is equally true for recreational communities like video games and magic trading cards as it is for professional ones. If your search in your app is not good at surfacing the relevant context around a result, finding a message in isolation can be completely unhelpful. And on top of that, like many of these apps don't make it possible to bookmark a search result or open a separate window with the result and its surrounding context. So you probably end up losing track of it. And there's no real easy way to keep up with the live chat in a channel while also referencing an important search result because the entire application is being constrained to the context of a single window instead of having a good multi-window paradigm. So that's sort of infuriating, and I feel like it's poisoning more and more types of apps, and it kind of sucks. Uh, and like to me, this is super stupid, because if the iPhone era should have taught developers anything, it's that it's possible to design desktop-class software that occupies a small physical footprint. And unfortunately, like on the Mac, it doesn't seem like developers have learned very much from uh, iOS UI design, aside from Twitter clients. Uh, when Tweety for Mac came out, it was pretty much trying to apply lessons that were learned uh, through the design of Tweety for iOS on the Mac, and that was visionary, and it changed a whole bunch of apps. It changed Twitter apps, it changed mail apps, it changed a bunch of apps, but then we never really saw any of those rethinks applied to any other kinds of apps, and that was kind of unfortunate. And of course, nowadays, iPhones are huge, uh, Pop-Tarts everywhere, and uh, we're seeing issues with the effective usage of real estate on iPhones now, so the problem has spread, uh, which is real sucky. Um so that kind of summarizes what I've had for uh, compact window software. I really just wish like small windows were viable. Uh, QuickTime Player is a great example of like this tiny window that I have in the corner right now recording audio, and it's great and I love it. And I wish that there were more like single purpose applications that fit in a small UI like that uh, that I could use day to day. And unfortunately, it feels like the, the chances of that happening are going down day by day instead of up, and that sucks. I think you're making a good point and making me realize a couple of things that I, I guess I was struggling to put some words on some like feeling I had with uh, Mac apps. And I, I think you could say like uh, your first point of like compact windows or compact app could even be made like, like powerful multi-window apps. It's yeah. just that too, right? Because if you have like multiple small windows, uh, Oh, if I would like, I guess the best example is, I'm sure, if you've used iChat in the past, uh, it was easy to end up with literally like ten windows open because yep. you had like literally ten conversation with your friends. But you could organize your desktop. Say, okay, no, I'm. Let's say Yannick and I were working on a school project because literally iChat was alive when we were still in school. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we, I could have my work document and or because Google Docs was, let's say we didn't use Google Docs, but like we could have like, we could set up it in such a way that uh, we wouldn't have to go back and forth. And I think the best example where I was trying to put my finger recently, and I know it's, 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 a, it's a bad example of a lot of things, but the, the news app on the Mac, yes. especially on the Mac. And I was thinking because it has kind of a back button a la iOS in the middle of the nowhere of the <laughs> top bar. Uh, but I do recall that uh, the new Photos app had that too, right? Yep. And I was trying to think about how would you do that in a Mac way? And I was like, ah, oh, but how, what, how apps would do that before? But what I was then realizing when I was thinking about that recently is Mac apps, maybe 10 years ago, were not really destinations as apps are today. I, I think Photos, it's, it was kind of derivative of iPhoto, and iPhoto has always sort of had that single window mentality. Like iTunes is very much the same. Right. Like, but they're like, I've, I've come up with this term, like workbench apps that you use, uh, which are basically like you have the sidebar on the left and then like the 
the main view on the right and everything is like single window, sort of like all of the iLife apps have wound up. And yeah, I, I think there's some DNA from that uh, iPhoto uh, user interface that sort of influenced, well, photos and also probably the design of iOS itself. Um, but news definitely feels more alien to me than photos does. Right, right. But you you still see some of the content. I totally agree. Like, like photos is kind of okay. You, you can make it feel okay navigation wise on the Mac, but you still it still feel a bit foreign, I think is the best word. And then if you contrast that is with my kind of I would say motivation. Like if you flip that and you bring all these concepts to the iPad, with especially now the fact that you can have multiple windows on the iPad, it feels that most apps that have multiple windows, it's more like if you're running multiple instances of the same app and not multiple windows uh, a good example could be and that if i recall correctly mail doesn't really do it but you cannot open a window just of another mail from your mailbox you might have the uh the good example is you might have finder or files app that yes it's multiple instances because that's the goal of it but a lot of apps when you put them in another window from what i've seen and tried is they kind of just like, oh, you can do all the other things you used to do with this app. I was like, yeah, but that's not really what I wanted to do. I want to open like a specific portion of your of the data you show or a, like a leaf of the navigation hierarchy. Like I'm there. Just let me open this window of this content and let me do it. And that's, I think, from what you're describing with compact windows, what I feel we're kind of not missing, but struggling with as uh, app makers on iOS to find the right way to do that also on iOS. Yeah, um, I don't use Apple Mail. I use Spark, but I would, like if I were to use Apple Mail, I would assume that if I hold down on a message and drag that message to the edge of the screen, it might open in a new window. Like that that seems to be the model. At, the, at least that's how I open uh links in new windows in uh, in safari now if i want to watch uh look at two web pages at the same time so mm-hmm. i i imagine that's how it is but again like it's kind of a slot machine whether the app you're using is going to support the dragon the rich drag and drop to spawn a new window like you already have to be lucky enough for the app to support multi-window in the first place and like th- this could be a whole other podcast on its own but i find that the implementation of multi-window on ipad is just like horrible and it leads to more problems than it does actual advantages in practice uh like i end up having 18 safari windows open for no fucking reason that i have to merge together and a bunch of apps that have the same issue don't have a merge button for the windows so i have to scramble to close them all myself like it's not good um but that was sort of outside the scope by the way, you're correct. I just tried something. I brought, uh, I used an iPad, and I learned something new today with Mail.app. Is you're correct. You, if you drag it to the edge of the screen, you can open a side window of just a mail. But, oh, but yeah, okay. like this basically only works in Apple's apps because most other apps don't seem to really be supporting the multi-window API or are opposed to it, like me, and purposefully don't support it. Right, right. <laughs> Okay, so next point is excellent power-to-weight ratio. Uh, Or put into English, what is the least amount of functionality I can implement to accomplish this task most efficiently? Uh, Until very recently, I never really thought of software as having power-to-weight ratios, but um, the example that really opened my eyes to this was the Gemini protocol. So I'm going to briefly describe what Gemini is, because I assume most people listening do not know. Uh, So if you're not aware, uh, the web is fractured and has a bit of an identity crisis. Uh, There's the hypertext web, which is the web as originally intended as a web of interlinked documents consisting of information. And there's the application web, which is if you try to treat the web as a platform-independent application runtime. And as far as I'm concerned, and a lot of other people who are very smart are concerned, uh, the hypertext web was feature complete in the mid-90s. It probably shouldn't evolve beyond that point. And the application web is on a completely other extreme end of the thing where they are on a mission to expose the full feature set of an operating system through the browser, whether it's a good idea or not. Uh, Like, I don't know if you've seen the specs recently. Web neural network API is an actual thing that is happening. 
Uh, oh my goodness. Oh, and another item I wanted to put in follow-up, but I forgot to copy over to my document. Uh, currently, the only way to use mini-disc players, uh, mini-disc recorders over USB on modern computers is to use a web USB app. I feel like this was made intentionally to troll me because I talked shit about web USB on the show two years ago. Um, but yeah, now the only remaining piece of software that can actually talk to mini discs over USB is fucking web USB. I'm so mad. Okay. Um, but that's the application. Wow. Because wait a second, the, because all the other native apps that used to be built are just all dead. They're too old. They're, they're meant to run on like windows XP at the latest. Wow. Okay. So the one person who cares enough about Minidisc to write their own software to do it, did it over the web. Yay. Um, But anyway, so Hypertext Web, Application Web. Uh, Unfortunately, these are the same web. And that means that you can have some terrible mashups that should never have happened. Like publications from the Hypertext Web can be financially supported by advertisers, which use all of the rich application web functionality to track you across websites. Um, So a lot of people out there think that the web would be better today if it had stuck to its original goal of just being sharing documents of information and not trying to be an application platform. Gemini is a protocol that sits somewhere between Gopher and web in terms of the functionality it uh, delivers, and it tries to solve the hypertext web side of the equation. And it sticks to three main principles. So the first one is simplicity of client implementation. Uh, So... As I described, web browsers are practically operating systems now, and that means that each platform has a browser with near-monopoly usage numbers. Uh, You can't really make your own web browser, whether it be for political reasons, like what was mentioned a couple weeks ago with uh, the App Store guidelines more or less saying you can't write web browsers, or uh, if you're on the Mac or something like that, uh, you'd be stupid to write your own web browser when you can just base it on one of the big rendering engines. And right now that boils down to Blink and WebKit. So Gemini is intentionally trying to avoid that kind of scenario by saying that someone with no part in designing the protocol should be able to memorize the entire spec after reading it once or twice. That's how simple it needs to be. A basic client should fit within no more than 100 lines of a high-level language. You should be able to write a daily driver client that implements every protocol feature realistically in a weekend if you're a single developer. And uh, one of the aspects of this that I really, really like is that uh, it's a single network transaction. What does that mean? Well, when you go to a website, uh, you might think, oh, well, I'm requesting limitlesspossibility.net. Well, in practice, you're not just requesting limitlesspossibility.net. You're requesting every image on that page. You're requesting... I don't remember if a style sheet is inline or not, but uh, if it's not, uh, you're requesting the style.css file. If we had JavaScript on the page, you'd be getting all the JavaScript files. And what that means is you can also link out to external resources, and that is a vector for tracking because you can put tracking pixels like Facebook does in a lot of websites and emails and stuff. Uh, So single network transaction basically means any file that is served with the text slash Gemini content type contains the entire document because there is no way to embed any resources in it. And there is no way to reference external resources that need to be loaded to make the document a complete document. It is very much designed to be a human readable document focused. And that is the point. The second point is privacy conscious. Uh, On the web, protocol features that were not intended for user tracking are routinely abused for user tracking. You can think about e-tags, you can think about super cookies, you can think about all of these things that exist that are vectors for tracking. Uh, You can do, if those features are disabled for some reason, uh, you can use fingerprinting and you can do all the crazy shit to uh, figure out what functionalities are enabled or disabled to uniquely identify a user. The internet is a creepy place, people. Uh, and the way Gemini gets around that is that the entire protocol is designed assuming malicious intent from the people who serve their, uh, who serve things on Gemini and that nothing is ever added to the spec that could be misused to track users. And, uh, the way the spec was written, it's deliberately non-extensible of the protocol level to prevent features from being added later that could be used for tracking. Um, and I think like a good example of this is uh, in HTTP, you have this context of headers, which are parts of the page that are non-visible, but can 
contain metadata about the HTTP request that's happening or the response that's being sent back to your computer. And you can add stuff indefinitely if you want to to support new features. And it doesn't even have to be features that are supported by all browsers. Uh, as long as you control the biggest browser, like Google Chrome, uh, you can force those features in and uh, it's all good. Um, so so uh, the way Gemini gets around that is that basically uh, you can't add headers arbitrarily. You have a status code, you have a content type. I think there's something for the certificates if you want to do authenticated services, that's it. You cannot extend headers that are given with the page. Oh, and I think, yeah, you have the path to the document because otherwise you wouldn't be able to request anything but the top page of the domain. Um, no user agents, a uh, whole bunch of stuff is simply not in the request. So you can't really use it to track users, especially not across sites. Wow, that's uh, that's quite a, of a simplistic approach to Yes, but sometimes simplistic approaches are the good ones. Uh, I'm I'm not making a judgment call on whether it is good or not. I'm just like surprised at its simplicity because it is really, really tiny as a, uh, as a protocol. Yes, and it's really great because of that. So Gopher, if you're less than 30 years old, you've probably never had to actually use it. Uh, Gopher is a simpler protocol than Gemini. It basically... I'm not fully aware of like the technical details, but more or less like the way it works is you either have directories, which are links to other pages that can have uh, text interspersed between them, or you can have documents, which are just text files. Um, and there's no support for any like fancy content types. It's just like maybe ASCII, maybe UTF-8 uh, text files in directories, more or less, which is really basic as a protocol um, but that also really limits the appeal because you can't have a page that is a long document with links in it like that is a no-no uh, so it's kind of strange um, uh, but Gemini basically like it's intended as I mentioned uh, to be between Gopher and the web in terms of what it's actually capable of viewing um, and I, I think it strikes a really nice balance so the next point uh, for Gemini is general use. So as I mentioned, primary goal, support a hypertext of human readable documents similar to Gopher or what they call the reasonable web, which is like blogs or websites that are designed by humans and not giant publications that are supported by advertising. Um, so yeah. Uh, to be generally useful, though, the protocol also needs to be able to serve other types of data like images, audio, or video without compromising the advantages that were mentioned for for hypertext documents. So uh, as I mentioned, like Gopher, the, more or less like there were two content types. There was directory and text uh, and like not even text and text encoding. It's just text. Uh, <laughs> here you have uh, support for text documents with an optional uh, text encoding parameter. And you can also serve images or audio or video and all of that stuff. Um, so it can do a lot more than what Gopher is capable of doing. Yeah, Gopher wouldn't scale to our like literally day-to-day needs. Like if you can send pictures, not you can not like uh, broadcast pictures nor videos, nothing like just text. Like come on. But like you say that, but there are still like a lot of people using Gopher today. Uh, there are entire wow. communities on Gopher. Uh, it's bigger than Gemini, actually. Um, it's just like you don't hear about them because most of their operations are happening entirely on Gopher and not to the public uh, on the internet, uh, which is mm. interesting. But it's it's actually a really nice world if you can get into it. And that sort of goes into where where I was going. Like all of these are great things about the protocol itself, but the community of users on Gemini is also delightful, and it reminds me a lot of the good old days of the internet. Uh, and I think like the reason uh, the reason behind this is that Gemini is kind of a niche thing that attracts people who are disillusioned by the web, and there are a lot of like minded nerds who value the same kinds of things in software. So I've been hanging out there a lot over the past few months. Uh, I actually have a little blog on uh, Gemini that I have been doing semi regularly every couple days. Uh, over the last couple of months, didn't really talk about it much. Um, but yeah, Gemini is a chill place and it is also a chill protocol. And there are lots of things I think that can be learned by looking at the, how the design of the protocol uh, happened that could be applied to other things, which will lead me to my next point. Uh, but before, do you have any further comments on Gemini? No, that's an interesting concept and uh, I'm eager to learn more about it. So I'll look at the links you have. 
Yeah. Uh, however, I don't know how people are going to react if they have Gemini colon slash slash links in the show notes, but uh, I'll try to include links to uh, HTTP proxies so people can view it in a web browser instead. It'll be less trouble that way. Uh, maybe not proxies, but I'm sure you have a link on uh, maybe how to get on Gemini and all that fun stuff. Yep, definitely. Uh, there's actually a a Gemini browser called Felicity in the Mac App Store uh, you can get mm. for free, which is, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only one that's up there right now, and it does the job, but it could be better. Okay, so my next point uh, is something that I've discovered very recently, like in the past few weeks, and I am very interested by this idea, and I'm very uh, intrigued to see what you think about it. It's called Trivial Technologies. Trivial Technologies is kind of a software development philosophy, it is a new modern take on free and open source software, and it's driven hmm. by three main principles, which is trivial, malleable, and open. So th this will sound very similar to something that I said five minutes ago. Uh, so what does trivial mean? Uh, beginners should be able to understand the code base in two days. Professionals should be able to grasp the code base in a rainy afternoon. If you have a project that is a trivial technology, uh, you are recommended to include a reading file, which explains what order you should start reading the code base in order to get a quick understanding of how things work. And you try to use as close as to a default build system as possible because too much of developers' times time is less is lost on debugging build issues. So, so far, pretty good. Malleable is you add easy hooks to add features and extend functionality. So, again, sounds pretty good. Only add features that you personally intend to use, but add extension points for people who want more features to add their own. And then open, uh, license it under a public license equivalent software license like ZeroBSD, Unlicense, or CC0. Now, when you take some time and think about it, all of these principles are synergistic. Uh, the openness encourages you to extend it which is why you have the malleability. Uh, the triviality makes it easier for newcomers to get in and modify the code and add their own features. And it's all basically in, it, it's all, it's all synergistic. I don't have a better word. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, I think, I think they, they, this describes it quite clearly uh, by using uh, this word. Yeah. Uh, and when you pay attention to it, it's actually quite an interesting lens through which you can look at software because it, enhances a bunch of things uh, and it answers a bunch of questions so one of the issues we talk a lot about on the show is maintainability because we are apple developers or at least you, you are an apple developer <laughs> and i am an ex-apple developer and um, apple likes to update their platforms quite a bit and that means there's a lot of stuff you need to maintain if your application has is trivial that means you have a small surface area and that means that in theory it should be more maintainable uh, and like if it's simple to read and understand, it should be easier to maintain in theory. That also makes it a really good learning tool. So uh, I first learned Objective-C and jailbreak tweak development by modifying Sorex 5-icon doc, which was a BSD licensed tweak uh, that literally just changed uh, the return result of a function that returns the int value of how many columns should be displayed in an icon list from four to five. And I took that file, which I must say was quite trivial, and I changed it in a very simple way to make it apply to the main icon views instead of just the dock. And that became my first jailbreak tweak that I released called Five Column Springboard. And then once I realized I could do that, I was like, oh, I wonder what else I could do. And I decided to make a more complicated tweak and a framework for more types of icon customizations, and that became Iconoclasm. Uh, and Iconoclasm was my primary income source for six years. So in a way, tinkering with liberally licensed open source code that was relatively simple to understand was directly responsible for my job for six years. Um, so 5IconDoc was accidentally trivial, I guess, because it was trying to do a very specific thing and it did exactly that. Um, but if you can have that happen to me, then why can't we take more complex types of applications and boil them down to a more approachable code base so that other people can have the same learning experience that I had, uh, except maybe with other kinds of software. And then there's the other problem that comes up a lot when we're talking about like the Apple and iOS community, which is business models. Um, 
and this was something we were talking about a little bit before the show. Um, so I've always had like this desire to make an application that is feature complete. Um, but when you think about the idea of being feature complete, there's one issue if you're trying to work as a developer, and that is how do you charge for feature complete consumer facing software? Um, if consumers pay for your app, they're, they just have this base expectation that it's going to be updated with new features because like, why else am I paying you? Uh, and even if your app is feature complete, there's still a maintenance cost to keeping up with OS releases, at least if you're working on an Apple platform, which is, yeah, uh, we've talked about that to death. So go listen to the 64 bit <laughs> migration episode if you're interested in that. So you can't really charge for feature complete software unless you're targeting the enterprise. And that is a whole other problem because enterprise sucks for a variety of other reasons. Um, but they are more likely to uh, value stability and nothing changing and all of that stuff. Uh, funnily enough, like users also kind of are change averse and don't want things to change, but they still feel like there should be new stuff if they pay for it, which is like, okay. Um, and of course, like the trend today is towards subscription-based software with new features that are constantly being added to justify this recurring payment. Now, that could easily be its own episode by itself. Um, I'm just going to touch on it briefly for this episode. Uh, I'm actually worried about the long-term impact of this approach to software quality in the Mac and iOS scene. Uh, and the problem for the reason for this is that there's a threshold you cross after which additional features don't actually make a significant impact on the way the majority of your users use your software. Uh, like one of the examples I bring up a lot is Photoshop 7. Photoshop 7 introduced layer styles, which was one of the most revolutionary features uh, to come to Photoshop. And that was literally the last feature in Photoshop I ever cared about. Like, I don't need anything else ever again. I sh just want Photoshop 7 for the rest of my life. And it doesn't matter how many features Adobe adds to their app. Like, I saw a great demo of the makeup transfer uh, feature earlier today where somebody took, like, a, a girl that was all made up and transferred her makeup onto a photo of Barack Obama, and it looked awesome. Uh, but, like, I have no use for that. <laughs> Whoa, that's a feature? That's a feature. Oh my goodness. Machine learning is crazy, people. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I kind of assumed there was ML behind all of that fun. Yeah. Uh, so, like, there is going to be a bunch of cool ML stuff in Photoshop, but, like, in actual day to day use, I have almost zero use for it myself. Uh, so, like, a subscription to Photoshop doesn't seem like I'm getting my money's worth. Uh, and it just seems like you're locked in and you're paying to maintain access to features you rely on. And you, yes, you're paying the maintenance cost, but sometimes you feel like you're paying way more than the maintenance cost. And uh, in a rolling release model, like these new subscription type apps are like, uh, feature bloat is a real concern. Once you introduce a feature, it becomes incredibly hard to remove it without potentially being disruptive to users' workflow. And the surface area of the software just keeps growing every year and you have to keep maintaining that code. And one of the great things about major versions and paid upgrades was that it gave developers a graceful way to make asignificant changes to their app's code uh, to rewrite things or whatever, or B, remove functionality even every couple of years, while also giving an exit ramp to users for, and telling them, like, you can keep using the major version you have until it stops working and then maybe find something else if the new version doesn't do what you need it to do. So subscription-based software isn't really the answer. Like it was never going to work for feature complete software anyway, because you sort of have to prove to the app store if you're doing invite the app store that your app is worthy of a subscription and like good luck doing that with feature complete software that is only going to get maintenance updates. Uh, so that's when you sort of realize like maybe the software that I am interested in writing just isn't suited to making a job out of it. And maybe trivial technologies are good exit strategy for those kinds of software uh to me trivial technologies are really like as is software uh, you don't make a commitment about long-term or timely maintenance or even about adding features long term but the software is intentionally designed in a way that facilitates both so if you're interested in using that software it shouldn't be a huge investment to keep maintaining it uh there's also a spinoff of Trivial Technologies, which is interesting because, like, I, I asked on uh, Mastodon if 
anybody knew of any software that was being released as a trivial technology and I heard crickets. Um, so I don't think anyone's actually writing any software and using this thing. It's just a document on the internet right now, but there's already a spinoff of it, which is very strange. Um, the spinoff is called usable technologies and it changes sort of the priority system around to making every piece of unprofitable technology of maximum value to the community at an acceptable cost. Uh, so it, it's definitely inspired by TT, but it's not doing the same things. So what do you think about this approach? Um, that is interesting. I, I, I think my, my kind of like, a, like a take, I would say, is when you did say a couple seconds ago that you, the the uh, TT was just a document on the web, more or less, that you didn't were not able to find software built this way. I, I was quite not surprised, to be honest. Mm. It, it seems a bit ideologic. Like, it's really, like, ideal wearing, like, pink glasses. It sounds great, but it's hard for me, even today, to find, like, one thing. Yes, it does it, but there's always, like... And I guess it's something we talk when I recently uh, privately is about uh, um, the different layers of abstraction that is the com computer world. Mm. Uh, there's always something in one of those that will change or break that will affect your more or less maximum viable product, which is you have everything, but there's one thing that one thing that has changed, which means an assumption has changed, so something breaks. So you have to go fix it. Yeah, definitely. And whether that affects the the, the feature set itself, maybe, maybe not. You know, like it's a bug, you go fix it. But throughout the years, I, I always tend to see, and depending on which platform you're using, that software is more or less like like a living creature, right? So either you decide that it has to go and it needs to get retired and then one day it will die because it's live a long life or you need to make sure it gets maintained even if you're not adding uh, features. Uh, so I think it's just a constant, a constant struggle uh, and for sure uh, having a set feature set makes it simpler to maintain over time i would say but again i wonder if the uh developer's motivation would stick over time because at the end it just like in an infinite time scale it will <sighs> just become bo more boring and boring to just oh another bug like there's nothing motivating like n nothing refreshing in this project to go fix because yet another bug yet yet something more negative yet more something negative so in the end you'll just like let it die and i think this is uh do i dare to say this i guess i don't care it's one of your episodes so i'll go there <laughs> but not that i dislike open source software but i think that's that's the the problem with it is people are like too open they're like, oh, this works. Just, it's on the internet now. So have fun. And then I strongly feel sometimes that there's stuff, like even if it's minimal, even if it's complex, there's stuff that, like there's technological pieces that are okay to keep to yourself because then you don't impose commitment. You don't like shout out commitments. You don't shout out anything. And the best way to do that is not tell to others, not telling to others about its existence because you don't, by not knowing about it, they don't have assumptions about what you'll do for them. But like this is very much like saying up front, this software is given to you as is. I don't promise shit. And if you want to do anything, please go ahead, fork it as much as you want, because the point is not the point is not for my project personally to blossom into something massively successful. The point is for people to have access to the software as a base from which they can learn, they can expand on, they can do all of this other stuff that is not directly using the software. Right. Again, I think it is quite noble to, to go at this route and be like, you know what? Like, here's the document that says, I have no expectation because literally... 
I'm writing this on my uh, my dying breath, and then <laughs> here's like I press send, and then I die. Literally, like this can. Uh, it's a bit dramatic, I know, but like this is kind of the, the mindset behind it. Is assume that even if you send me an email, I will never reply because I'm gone, more or less. Uh, that that I think is good because uh, it it could create some con- not some back catalog for like rare technologies and stuff like that. But again, I, I wonder if people will still ignore the uh, oh, it's as is and then just bother the original like uh, maintainers of all that fun stuff. Potentially. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, let's let's get into my conclusion because there's some interesting stuff in here. So some people say be the change you want to see in the world. And that is kind of what I'm doing with this. So I've started work on two apps that try to adhere to the trivial technologies principles. Ooh, two apps? Two iOS apps? Multi-platform Apple apps. Ooh, even better. Yes. Uh, I also have ideas for two other ones in case I finish somehow, which seems unlikely. But uh, (laughs) yeah, uh, so I guess I'll announce the two that I'm working on right now because I've talked about one of them semi-publicly and I've alluded heavily to the other one. So... Uh, I'm working on a music player inspired by iTunes, which was called Azalea. And I am working on a Gemini browser called Celestia. Ah, so that's why you were bitching about the competition earlier in this episode. I mean, it's a good job, but it was not, it's not feature complete to the way that I would want it. Um, So progress is slowly being made on both of them. Um, I need to get used to Swift again. Swift has changed a lot since I last touched it. uh, And... I need to get up to speed to it. I'm trying to use Swift UI for as much as possible, and I have done a lot of Swift UI prototyping within the uh, Playgrounds app on iOS, uh, which has been really nice. nice. Uh, but we also need to acknowledge that it's actually really hard to just get anything done in 2020. Uh, so the motivation isn't fully there, uh, but we will most definitely have a future episode with my thoughts on what it's like to make a modern Mac and iOS app using Swift, uh, because I have a lot of thoughts. Nobody is surprised by this. Oh, I can imagine. Oh, now I'm. Oh, I'm getting excited, Yannick. I'm getting excited. Ooh, you <laughs> I told you this is going to be a good apps. one. Ooh. Uh, so right now the uh, the repositories are completely private. Uh, I'm waiting for the apps to at least become usable for their basic functionality before making the repos public because there's no real point. Uh, and of course, there's a lot of conceptual work that needs to happen because if ideally you want to make the simplest version of an iTunes-like music player, you have to think a lot about how you're structuring your code and not making it up as you go because otherwise it's probably not going to be as simple a design as it can be. Um so there's a lot of stuff happening in markdown documents and all of that stuff that is not strictly speaking code. I have a basic Mac UI put together uh, that it looks pretty nice to me. Um, I would like the first major release of Azalea to more or less be on par with the functionality of iTunes 1.0, uh, which is quite old and not necessarily fully featured, but I just want something that I can tolerate as quickly as possible because iTunes is so bad in 2020. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, look forward to that uh, in the coming months and probably we'll be talking about it more so next year than in the next few months because we already, I already have my topics chosen for the next few months. Uh, so yeah, uh, that's happening. I, and the other thing is like I, I've been realizing a lot through the past few months that right now I'm sort of in a phase where a lot of the software that I find inspiring and cool that is being developed is not coming out of the Apple world. It's coming out of the BSD and to some degree Linux world. And I don't know how I feel about this. Um, Like a lot of the stuff that I'm seeing that's really cool is happening on those platforms, but it's happening on the command line more so than it's happening in any kind of UI framework. And I don't want to get into the whole Linux UI frameworks thing because that could be an episode too. But I don't know. Like part of the thing that spoke to me in the whole uh, trivial technologies thing is it seems like a really great way to make passion projects that can be impactful on the community because they're basically public domain and they're designed to be not only software products, but also 
like sort of a, a gift to the community sounds pretentious, but useful to the community um, in a way that normal open source software isn't necessarily. Like sometimes it just feels like somebody wrote this thing and they dumped it open source and you got it in the state it was, which is kind of what you were alluding to, I think. Yes, exactly what I was alluding to. And this is more like the end goal of the software is taken into account when designing the software. And again, like since nobody's really releasing software under this model, I don't know how viable it is. So this is going to be a cool experiment in a way. Um, but yeah, it feels like a way to make your passion projects more impactful on the community. And I think that's great because I think something that everybody can learn from 2020 is that uh, it's good to have responsibilities towards your community uh, and to do your part in the world and not just be uh opinionated asshole who rages at people on mailing lists uh so uh, i don't know we'll see where how it goes but uh i'm very excited to work on these projects and uh i hope you are excited our listeners to come along for the ride oh i am excited if they're not <laughs> i am and i think that deserves it already it's like if i am excited then we'll talk about it again so that's great and i mean like a part of this is motivated by stuff like uh, the system six seed programming videos that I mentioned earlier, or uh, even just like in the last year of the episodes of ATP, where John Syracuse has been talking about his experience going through developing front and center and switch class. Uh, I just realized I don't have front and center running on this Mac, but I do have a switch class. Um, uh, it's just like it's the kind of entertainment that I sort of miss uh, from shows like Edge Cases RIP. Uh, I just like listening to nerdy people talk about their side projects. And for a while, like, I don't think either of us really had side projects except for like my game projects uh, during game jams. Uh, so, I mean, it's going to be good for the show. It's going to be good for me because I'm going to have a music player that I can tolerate. Uh, and hopefully it's going to be good for everyone because there's going to be interesting open source code to come out of it at the end. So... Yeah, uh, I'm really excited for, I guess, for the next year. But yeah, uh, let's go. Good. Thank you, Yannick. So if you want to find all the show notes related to this episode, Yannick will, I'm sure, have a lot of links, uh, especially if you want to explore uh, Gemini. Uh, you can find those at limitlesspossibility.net slash 147, so 147. Uh, you can find the back catalog of all of our episodes of for the last six years at limitlesspossibility.net. You can find the latest news about the podcast on Twitter at limipo underscore podcast. That's L-I-M-I-P-O underscore podcast. You can find myself on Twitter at lucunush, L-U-C-C-O-N-O-U-C-H-E. But like Yannick mentioned last week, I'm also following him into a small hiatus on Twitter. So I'll see the mentions. But again, I'm trying to uh, cool off of Twitter for at least the past mm, this point uh 10 days and it's doing great i'm uh i, I guess the teaser for next week but <laughs> teaser for sure in the future i'm reevaluating rss into my life which i think i haven't done uh, like i didn't follow uh blogs and news uh, over rss for uh a couple of years now sorry i'm sidetracking the conclusion but uh yes long story short you can still find me on Twitter, but I might be uh, longer than usual to reply if need be. And you can find Yannick at... Sakurina, that's S-A-K-U-R-I-N-A. And like you could even mention, I'm also taking a break off Twitter. I'll maybe see you after the elections. Wink, wink. Uh, but you can find me on Mastodon, actually, uh, while uh, while we're on this hiatus from Twitter. I am Sakurina at icosahedron.website. So there you go. Good. And on that note, see you all in two weeks. See you in two weeks.